This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode, I am without my co-host, Jean, and I will be talking with a delightful and passionate woman I had the opportunity to meet this past June at a conference where we were both presenting. Heather Hamilton is perhaps a modern-day mystic. She has a degree in journalism from Georgia State University and has spent many years helping others tell their life stories. Experience that led to her writing this book, Returning to Eden, after her own profound shift in how she thinks about her faith and perhaps even the life that we are all living. I hope you will stay with us for this exciting conversation. Welcome, Heather Hamilton, to Wild Olive Podcast. It is really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jen. That was a wonderful introduction. I, yeah, that was fresh to my ears the way that you said it. And that was really lovely. So thank you. I have to say, I continue as I was reading your work, I was like, oh, she's helping me understand Julian of Norwich a lot more than I did (laughs) when I read her in seminary. And (laughs) I thought, does does Heather know that she's a mystic? Have you had that conversation with people? I don't know. It's it's funny because that um I didn't I didn't even know what that word meant or anything like that prior to my experience, which we can get into later. So I don't know yeah. if it would have meant anything to me. It, it doesn't like ring a bell as a word that I would have heard before. But now that I have heard it, sometimes I sort of immediately know what it's referring to, and then in, in different crowds, it's sort of a loaded word. Mm-hmm. So it, I feel a little, I don't know, like insecure sometimes being like, mm. yes, I am. Or you know, I'm like, <laughs> I guess I prefer to just let people say what they will, you know? Yeah. Let your actions and your writings speak for themselves in a sense. Yeah. 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 And I didn't mean to derail this whole conversation in towards that, but I, you know, it was, it was one of those things that as I kept reading, I was like, I wonder, I wonder about that. But I would like to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, like to hear a little bit more about your story in terms of how it informs this book that you've written, Returning to Eden, a a Spiritual Guide. A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey. Thank you. I'm sorry. Yes, a Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey. It is. It's a good mouthful. So I know that there you could take a long time telling your own story. So whatever you think is relevant to kind of informing what it is you're doing in this book, I would love to hear a little bit more. Yeah. So I, yeah, my background is, I feel like is a very stereotypical evangelical background where it, it sort of started out Baptist in the Bible Belt with Awanas. If your listeners are familiar with that, it's like a children's mm-hmm. program where basically you like get rewards and little pins, sort of like Girl Scouts, but learning Bible verses, you know, mm-hmm. and I really loved it. Maybe maybe one little caveat to my story is that I think for a lot of people um, who grew up in church, they may have felt like 
my parents dragged me here. I really didn't have a choice. Like this was just part of the custom of our family. Mm-hmm. And in my case, it really wasn't like that. I remember getting invited to a church by some of our neighbors who were also missionaries. And Awana was my, my first introduction. And I really enjoyed it. Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was like pizza and games and <laughs> You know, I remember sitting on the couch, like learning the books of the Bible, you know, when I was seven or something like that um, Mm -hmm. with my mom and all these verses. And then, you know, you would get awards for it. And I was really good at all of it. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to be in church. And, you know, I would, the little church bus would come pick me up from my house (laughs) on Sunday mornings. And then it would be like an hour picking up other kids till we finally got to church. And then it was actually sort of after that, that my parents ended up coming and we would like go to church together as a family. But so I definitely didn't feel drug into it. I felt like this is great, you know, like why wouldn't everyone want to be a part of this? So anyways, I moved around a little bit, um, like in elementary and middle school. And each time we moved, it was like, I need to find my youth group. That's my people. So, you know, that was sort of like the priority and how I oriented myself. And, you know, everywhere we moved, it was kind of like once I found those people, the culture was sort of similar, you know, Mm -hmm. so there was like that cultural thread running, running through my life the whole time. Ended up getting very involved with like a large mega church in Atlanta. And, you know, I do video production work. So, you know, a lot of my work was in the church telling, you know, lots of stories of, you know, people's spiritual journeys or conversions or whatever, you know, was very involved with like, you know, big conferences and stuff. Once you get into the megachurch world, it's like now there's like an excellence of talent that's being Mm. attracted to this whole thing. So Mm -hmm. it's like you have like the mission component, you know, like we're here to like save souls and bring people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then you have the excellence component, which is truly excellent. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I met my husband in the church. And he is a musician and he ended up becoming the music director at this large church that we were at and is truly like the best musicians in in the city that he would play with, you know, would play at church on Sundays or at special events and then are at like, you know, with like A-list musicians on tour, you know? And so it it all just felt excellent and this Hmm. makes sense. And, you know, we, Hmm. we had quote unquote, like we're living like the good straight and narrow path or whatever. I had three kids and we're just rocking and rolling, you know? Um, and then about five years ago, I sort of, it, it's as I'll be, I'm going to be a little bit vague about it from like a personal standpoint, but essentially sure. it just felt like a divine lightning strike in my life where essentially I was confronted with some past trauma that I had, I didn't know what trauma was or how it had affected me or anything. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it sort of felt like, you know, if you had like a 1000 piece puzzle that you didn't have a picture for, and you're trying mm-hmm. to like put the pieces together, I kind mm-hmm. of felt like my life was like that, where it was like, oh, this fits and this looks about right. And you kind of think that you have the puzzle going that makes sense. And then it was like someone flashed up the box for the first time. And I saw what it was supposed to look like and realized like, oh my God, you know, a lot of what I thought fit doesn't fit. And like, I I see what it's supposed to look like. And yeah, it was just, it kind of sent me very quickly into an identity crisis where, you know, I had kind of thought like, well, I've been successful for these reasons. And I think this way for these reasons. And you know, I'm living my life this way for these reasons. And suddenly none of that made sense anymore. So this kind of sent me into like a psychological tailspin really over the course of a few days. So, you know, wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's intense. Yeah. And, you know, mental health, thankfully is something that, you know, we have a lot more awareness now, but I think typically, you know, people are sort of identifying it trying to work through it. And it's sort of, you know, something that they are cognizant of in their life, but the level of like panic and terror and just undoing that was happening for me, I just had no 
previous experience with. And so, you know, I had seen, I had seen a therapist for like 15 years to, you know, marriage communication things and, you know, some anxiety (laughs) things. And let's talk about this situation. And suddenly I, my nervous system was so overwhelmed and so just unraveled that I knew talk therapy is not going to pull me out of this, but I didn't have any awareness of like any other resources that were available beyond, yeah, beyond like sitting in a therapist's office. In my mind, I was kind of thinking if I ask for help, I think asking that question is, is going to land me in like um, a psychiatric facility. That was really what I, I thought my predicament was. And I had just had a baby, you know, 10 weeks ago. And so. Do you mean if you were simply to name what was going on, you were afraid that would cause all the floodgates to open? Is that what you mean? You say like just acknowledging it was going to cause you, it's just too much to just. Um, Well, I was experiencing like back to back to back to back panic attacks where I was like just completely unregulated and I really didn't have a history with this. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it, it just felt like therapy is not what I need. I don't know who else to call except for 911 basically, because I just Mm -hmm. don't know what's going on with me. So that felt extra terrifying because of the prospect of being separated from my kids. There was one evening I had barely slept in days and I was, you know, down in my basement having a panic attack and, you know, crying out to God, you know, please help me, you know, please make this stop. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I was conscious about this until this moment, but it was really a moment of such like hopelessness and despair where I realized I understand how people can't live like this. It wasn't like that I was imminently suicidal. It was just this sobering realization of like, I can't live like this. And if this doesn't get better, this isn't going to turn out well. I was sort of overwhelmed by that realization. And then, you know, kind of imagining like, well, if I was ever in a situation like this, like God would come rescue me somehow, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was explicitly conscious in my head. But I was crying out for someone, you know, and, you know, based on the promise that I would never be left alone and, you know, God would never leave me and and all this kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. for the first time, I just felt nothing like Mm. it. It felt like my soul had just been untethered out in space. And it was just this confrontation with reality of like, nobody is coming to save you. Like, whatever you thought was going to happen is not happening. And it was truly an experience of hell, like the terror that I felt in that moment. I kind of sort of just knew on a very deep level that like this sort of feeling of alienation is what that word is referring to. Mm -hmm. So at that point I did tell my husband, you know, like I need help. I need you to call 911, which was essentially me surrendering to like whatever was going to happen including like, you know, maybe I'm going to be separated from my newborn. I don't know, you know. But um so call 911. Yeah. yeah, it was terrifying. And the paramedics show up and I open the door and just kind of start word vomiting. And immediately the person who was, you know, looking at me on my porch, when she started speaking, I immediately recognized that she was a transgender woman. Mm-hmm. Again, we're here in the Bible Belt. I'm very right. saturated in, in yeah. this evangelical culture. And it was simply not what I was expecting. It was sort of a surprise twist in in what I was expecting to happen, as if I could have like predicted anything. But I was like, oh, I wasn't right, certainly right. wasn't predicting this, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah. again, I'm like in this moment, but also sort of watching myself from a 30,000 foot view going, okay, I don't know if I would have been conscious about this before this moment, but I don't know if I trust this person because uh, it's, you're not exactly in my in group, in my little circle of Christian trust. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. And so- 
but it's not like, that what that's am I how you do? see it now. <clears throat> not that that's how yeah. you see it now, but that's who you were not and how what I was going it. on for you. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It was this yeah. confrontation with the other, which, you know, even if, you know, for yeah. those of us now who are like, you know, everyone's equal. We love everyone. Da, 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 da. For I think for people who find themselves in that camp, it's really hard to not feel people who don't feel that way are kind of other, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's, yes. that's a little bit of a tangent, but I, I realized that I didn't have an inherent trust with this person, but what else was I going to do? You know, like this was the person here to help me. So I just, I keep speaking. And as we continue to interact, you know, I had tried to explain to my husband, explain to some of my family that week, like what had been, what was happening with me. And I couldn't quite get them to see the depth of the crisis. Hmm. And for the first time, like this person saw me completely. And once I felt completely understood and mirrored, you know, yeah. she was sharing that she had been like in a similar situation. And I, I knew that she knew what I was going through. Right. It was like all my defenses just collapsed. And the experience of just being really like naked in my vulnerability and held in like the sort of the compassionate embrace that mm -hmm. that woman was giving me, I felt the love of Christ like coming off of her, which was like a, was like the landmark event in my story where there's this mm -hmm. unexpected body. And suddenly like, it was like the essence of Christ was just coming off of her. And it felt like time just kind of collapsed. And I felt really like just, I don't know, caught up in a sort of like heavenly awareness in this moment. And so, you know, for the first time in my life, there was a recognition of like, there was Christ in this body that, you know, that was shocking to me, but in a way that was necessary to kind of wake me up, you know, into the moment, like, you know, Mary with the gardener or whatever, like thinking it's some ordinary person. And suddenly it's like, wake up, you know, like this is, there's divinity. You're in the presence of divinity. Um, and so I saw that in this trans woman and I also felt it in me. Like there was this welling up of this presence of what I recognized as Christ in myself. And then sort of like the communion and recognition of the one, one another. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in my book, it took me probably a few months to even come across the language of like mystical experience or anything like that. I was sort of grasping for like, what was this? This was something mm -hmm. different than mm -hmm. what I had experienced in my, you know, in my euphoric worship experiences or whatever in church. This, mm -hmm. this was distinct. And so, um, yeah, eventually I came across the term, you know, mystical experience. And I was like, that's what it was. Um, and yeah, so I'll leave it there for now, but that, that experience like reoriented my reality, which obviously like reoriented my theology. Right, right. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I do want to acknowledge, especially because we do have Jewish listeners, that when you talk about, you know, in your context, when that moment happened for you, that was the language that made the most sense. And I also know that you use the word Christ in your book in more of a universalistic kind of a way, even, you know, where I am uh, personally and theologically, I, I personally wouldn't make that choice. I understand what you're doing when you use that. But, I, you know, for the sake of all of our listeners, I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit of the nuance that you intend when you refer to, sure. you know, that Christ figure or that Christ essence. Yeah. Well, and I really, I really do like the word essence because I think it goes... I think it takes us deeper than like, you know, a physical manifestation of something. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, Richard Rohr has a really good, it's kind of a funny term, but I love it. In his book, <laughs> The Universal Christ, he said, Christ is not Jesus's last name. And so in that, that book is actually really great at speaking to this distinction that you're talking about. So the way that he kind of uses it and what I experienced in this moment and then continue to experience afterwards was Christ being this like animating spirit of God that is sort of 
animating everything in all of creation from the beginning of time. So this is speaking, you know, before Jesus incarnate in the body of Jesus, which, you know, Christians believe that that spirit of Christ was like shining kind of translucently through Jesus, but then after. So it's, you know, in the New Testament, we hear Paul saying in Ephesians, like, you know, Christ fills everything in every way. Clearly, he's not talking about the 33-year-old historic man necessarily. Like, what does that mean to say, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus, the 33-year-old man is filling me in every way? That, you know, that doesn't really make sense when you think right. about that. So, yes. When, when, when I'm talking about, like, I experienced Christ in this woman, you know, was the 33-year-old Jesus standing on my front porch? No. But it was like the same essence that was animating him was animating this woman. And and I experienced that essence animating the deepest part of me as well. Yes. And that's the piece yes. I, want, I think others can relate to, right? And connect yes. with yes. on a certain level. And to level. your point, yeah, I, I see this, I mean, certainly in every religion, but even beyond that, like a meditative practice or something where like the mind is still enough. I sense this essence like welling up in nature and in creation, you know, and, and when we, when we see, you know, be still and know that I am God, like, what does that mean? Right. And to me, right. yeah, it, it's yeah. this encounter with the stillness of the present moment that this, you know, this kind of mm. essence rises up. So yes. And the Christian yeah. language for that is Christ, but there's certainly other words for it. There are. Yeah. In other contexts. Thank you for clarifying that. I do want to move on to talking a little bit about what you're doing in this delightful book, Returning to Eden. And again, you have really, you have uh, close to 40 chapters, I think. And each one Mm -hmm. is this incredibly dense morsel to chew on and mull over, right? So we can't do your whole book justice today. (laughs) And I just want to say that, like, I I want to acknowledge that you have covered quite, quite a lot, quite a few topics. It's not just Mm -hmm. a rereading of Genesis 2 and 3, as the title suggests, and that's part of what you're doing. But you're also doing a rereading for yourself and for anyone else who's interested on how to in, how to engage so many parts of the Bible or your own faith, whatever context that's playing out in. So I wanted to just I wanted to say that for people who might be interested in your book that you're going to encounter a lot of ideas that are being reframed in ways that I think are can be quite liberating for people, at least mm-hmm. for people who have come from as I did and you did, come from a more literalistic reading, right, of scripture mm-hmm. and perhaps even the doctrines of the tradition we were part of. So I'm wondering, as a way to get us to what you're gonna what you do with some of these parables that I just think is lovely, would you mind, you know, either talking about a little bit or clarifying how you learned about a Jungian reading, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then I'm going to ask, and then I want us to chat a little bit about myth as well before we get yeah. into the parables. So, yeah, how did you encounter Carl Jung? Who is he? I think many people have heard the name, but yeah, know, how did you encounter it? How did that help you shift a little bit? Yeah. So, I guess to set that up, um, I'll go back very quickly to that moment I mentioned that I described as hell. When I was in that place psychologically, sort of an illumination came to me. And I want to reiterate, I had not read this idea anywhere. It wasn't like there was no exploration for me outside of the literalist interpretation of the Bible. This was like in in this experiential knowledge, a thought that welled up and kind of came to me in that moment was like, this is the belly of the whale. You know, I knew that this is what this story was referring to and whoever that Jonah character was, whether he was literal or whether this was a mythological story, I knew that this place of feeling swallowed in the darkness was what this belly was referring to. And so, you know, I ended up not going to a hospital, but seeing my therapist and kind of going through this 
new therapeutic process called EMDR, where you kind of go in and explore like different memories, distressing memories that that you had. So I sort of had the realization that these biblical metaphors that had been embedded in me from a very early age were really sort of these symbolic roadmaps for a very personal healing journey that I was experiencing. You know, Mm. in my therapist's office, I wasn't talking about Jonah and the whale and Noah's Ark and and all this stuff. I was talking, (laughs) I was talking about my life, you know, and going, trying to go back, back, back far enough, like into the belly. So, you know, in Christianity, a lot, we talk a lot about rebirth and it's framed as like a decision, you know, do you want to accept this (laughs) cosmic arrangement, you know, that God (laughs) and Jesus have made on your behalf and like, boom, you're reborn, you know? Right. And for me, like what I was doing in therapy was really like discovering the face I had before I was born, like discovering my essence before I even came here. And it really felt like that, um, that like retroactive, like, you know, who were you in your mother's womb? Like, can you feel yourself in there (laughs) before you entered this world? And started to orient yourself with all these different labels. You know, I'm a woman, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm smart. I do well in school. You know, I'm, I'm a video producer. I'm a mom, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was like, I started to recognize all those things as sort of roles I was playing or natural capabilities based on, you know, my personality and all of which was like well and good and needed to like make my way in the world. But in that process, I had lost like the essential quality of of who I was, where when those things were like, you know, jolted and jarred and kind of stripped away, I didn't know who I was anymore without them. And so it was, it really did feel like, you know, as a 32, 33 year old woman, truly this process of rebirth where I was discovering who I was Uh. for the first time and then able to bring like that kind of pure essence into the roles that I was playing without becoming overly identified with them. So okay. to get to, to get to your um, question <laughs> wow. about Carl Jung. Yes. Yeah. Carl yeah. Jung was a, a Swiss psychoanalyst in the um, 20th century. You know, he kind of first started to gain notoriety because he, um, you know, Freud was kind of his mentor. And then eventually he sort of had a break with Freud and started to develop develop some of his own theories. But um, he developed what's called analytical depth psychology. And really what he recognized from working with his patients was, you know, in their dreams or in their personal like myths and religions, there were these sort of universal symbols that would come up. And, you know, if he if he could kind of follow them or get his patient to follow them, you know, it would sort of lead to the wounds or the root of the neurosis that the, you know, his patient was experiencing. And so, you know, as I was doing my own personal work and discovering some of these biblical myths and metaphors as a roadmap for me, um, yeah, I came across Jung and just sort of immediately recognized that a lot of what was buried in my unconscious, as he would call it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, things that you're not aware of, but are driving your behaviors and your thought patterns and our addictions and our neuroses and all of this, you know, we're kind of trapped and buried in my unconscious. And the mm-hmm. task was sort of to extract that out of the unconscious and make it conscious. Um and right. sort of the linchpin of that for Carl Jung was that your actual life force was actually hidden and buried within the unconscious. And so, you know, okay. he, he, you know, he grew up Roman Catholic and I think he was Roman Catholic and eventually, you know, left the church for a, the same reason that a lot of people do is like literalism is, you know, it is worth nothing to me, but as mm-hmm. the years and years and years of his practice and you know, he wasn't just psychoanalyzing his patients, but also himself. Sure. He really went deep into his own psyche to better understand his patients. It was like these religious symbols were coming up for him again. And he kind of recognized like re-engaging with them was this return to wisdom. 
Yeah. That is a lovely note to take a break on. We need to take a pause here to hear from our um, our sponsors, our supporters. But that's a lovely phrase idea that we will pick back up on here in just a moment. So stay tuned. Okay, Heather, I think the time has come for us to do some, let's just get into it, shall we? Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about myth. I do have to say, I wanted to share this with our listeners. I was, your chapter four of your book is titled The Function of Myth. And I'm just going to read the quotation that you have used at the opening. So you are quoting Joseph Campbell, who I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, and his role in talking about mythology and trying to help in a sense, educate people beyond a simplistic understanding, right? So the quotation you have used, half the people in the world think that the metaphors of their religious traditions are facts, and the other half contends that they are not facts at all. As a result, we have people who consider themselves believers because they accept metaphors as facts, and we have others who classify themselves as atheists because they think religious metaphors are lies. And <laughs> I wrote a note to myself and put it here in my kind of conversation notes for you today. This is exactly what I go through almost every single time I do an intro course to the Hebrew Bible. I have many faithful people, right, who are believing these metaphors as historically accurate. And these other people who refer to themselves as atheists, but I think we could actually re- there's another category out there, but that's a conversation for another day, right? Who, who say, of course, of course, it's not literal, and therefore they throw the whole thing out, right? So, part of what Gene and I are up to here in this podcast is trying to show people that there, there's more than one way to engage these stories. What I think is profoundly helpful is the way that you talk about myth and the way that you've helped us to reconceive perhaps some of the more tricky parables, but mm -hmm. can you say anything more about that in terms of the shift for you? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, as I was kind of plunging the depths of my own unconscious, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I came across, I came across um, Joseph Campbell a little bit after Carl Jung. And so I understood what Jung was saying, basically in terms of like the spiritual journey or salvation was you know, contrary to what I had been taught, you know, it wasn't this decision or, you know, insurance plan for getting somewhere in the afterlife. You know, that was priority A. And then like the side note was like, and you can have a great life now, you know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, great. But really, we just don't want to burn in hell and we want to go to heaven when we die. Like that's, that's the main motivating factor. But what I was experiencing I immediately understood what Jung was saying was that the spiritual salvation was essentially to be found in in plunging the depths of my soul and bringing that essence and my destiny into actualization. It was about self-actualization and you know that whole concept of like bringing heaven to earth or you know the kingdom of heaven is is among you or is in you or whatever. I understood what that meant. It was bringing the vitality of my life like into my ordinary world. So I later came across Joseph Campbell which you know again I I'm sort of a skeptic but then sometimes things do just happen where you know I was just sort of perusing the religion section of my local library and it was almost like this book just leaped out at me off the shelf like it almost felt energetically like that you know. <laughs> um so and it was Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth it had you know a um, interesting looking picture that looked kind of Eastern or whatever on the on the front of the book. And so as I read it and he described, you know, the Jonah and the whale story, he talked about, you know, the symbolic meaning of, you know, the different symbols in the story, the water kind of being a universal symbol for the unconscious in the field of mythology. So, you know, if you are a mythologist, you're immediately going to be thinking in those terms. If you come across like a big sea or a big flood or, you know, a huge body of water. And so you see that, um, you see Jonah, who's kind of, you know, kind of asleep to himself, but also being kind of jolted by his anxiety, like that's sort of causing the chaos in his life. You and could identify this, with <laughs> Yes. Directly. Yeah. Right. Yes. 
Yes, yeah. but it but not until then, you know, exactly. I could look back on my life and going like, I wasn't trying to quote unquote outrun God, you know, right. I, I didn't really resonate with that language right. until I realized that, you know, God was within me and I was trying to outrun myself. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, I was looking in the wrong direction and it right. was really the, the inner core of myself that was so shaky and chaotic, you know, needing to get out the re the, yes. the you needing to get out. Yes. And so, you know, Joseph Campbell explained, you know, the fish and the jaws of this, this fish is like the threshold into hell. It was like, you know, representing the power of the unconscious, just swallowing this old personality. And it's in this belly of hell, which I went back and and read the Jonah story. And for the first time realized, he says, out of the belly of hell, I cried. I'm Mm. like, what in the world? You know, no one had pointed that out to me in Sunday school, like that he went to hell, you know, (laughs) sitting in the belly of hell for three days. This is is essential information, people. Yes, it's essential (laughs) information. And, and, and by the way, like, you know, okay, what happens in a belly? It's, it's this breaking Mm -hmm. down of the old, everything Mm -hmm. is broken down. And then that energy is metabolized and recycled. And then, you know, first of all, like what we eat, like becomes our body, you know, like I eat an apple, it's digested. And then that apple, you know, becomes me, (laughs) it -hmm. allows my body to keep living. And right. then there's also this rebirth that happens. And so you see Jonah essentially spit back out onto the shore, which is representative of like the ordinary world, you know, like, right. Right. boom, you're, you're back, you know, you just huh. went into the underworld and uh-huh. now you're just back. But with this newfound wisdom, it's like, he's like captured the elixir of life that he now has to go and like bestow upon the withering kingdom, you know, his task uh-huh, is like, right. go tell the people, you know, like go bestow this wisdom or whatever. So I, I first encountered that interpretation from Joseph Campbell, but it was, it was a parallel exactly to what w- I was experiencing in my ordinary life. Right. So on one right. hand, I was dealing with my own very personal traumas But then understanding as I was dealing with those feeling like my life force really for the first time that I could remember, you know, Hmm. my my presence and engagement with the present moment was almost overwhelming to me at first. Like I remember having these experiences where I, I mean, I was just like standing in the sun feeling like I was feeling it for the first time. Like it was Hmm. just an overwhelming experience of like. I feel like like love's beating down on me in the form of like the sun rays, you know, or just like seeing my children for the first time. You know what I mean? Yes. And so, so anyway, I mean, I'm not saying that I live every moment of my life just like on the brink of tears, but, (laughs) but sometimes I do like experience it that way. And so I recognized it as this rebirth where it's like, what happens when a baby is born? Like, Suddenly, all of its like its sense perceptions are heightened. Everything in the vi- environment feels like new mm-hmm. and familiar and mm-hmm. and wonderful, and all these things. Mm-hmm. So it was like the personal, you know, unconscious integration work of Young uh-huh. was intersecting with sort of the thirty thousand foot mythological, you know, view of Campbell. Exactly, and, and it came together with me feeling like this is what it's about. And without, without the knowledge of those stories, like when you find yourself in that dark night of the soul or hell, or, I mean, it's not romantic at all. It's terrifying. And without sort of like a map that tells you like, Hey, there's purpose here. Mm -hmm. Like you Mm -hmm. need to incubate here for a little bit of time. You know, the natural instinct is like, get me out of here. You know what right, I mean? Like right, right, I never right. want to return to that, but that really is like the place of transformation. So myth kind of serves as the map, which gives you the courage and the faith to actually like walk in your destiny, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you brought together very nicely in what you've just explained. Several of the, the highlights for me were in your book. And one was this one of your chapters, which we probably actually don't need to get into because you've said so much about it already, 
one of the chapters is called Go to Hell, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, as I read that chapter, I was like, oh, yeah, right? I have, a, I have a magnet on my fridge that says, if you're going through hell, keep going, right? Like, there's a process here. Like, it sucks to be there, but don't, like, there's a thing to see through here, and it might not just take three days to get through, you know, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't take you to mean that, that that was the case in your, but, you know, just there's this process that's going on there. And it's not a thing to be necessarily afraid of. It's actually an essential part of this growth that is going to happen. Yes. Um, I, I do not want to ever minimize people's suffering or anything like that to say, oh, just keep going. Because I know that sometimes suffering is is beyond, uh, you know, suffering happens in so many different ways. I just realized I wanted to be careful about not sounding flip about this. And I don't take my magnet to be flip either. <laughs> so it's yeah. People laugh at that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I've I've had some rough, rough moments. And that's actually yeah. a, kind of a helpful meeting me there to keep going. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that something that you're pointing to that just came to me is I've I have experienced immense suffering, which I which with a mindset of like this should not be happening. Why is this happening? And mm. and it's very natural, of course. Like we're wired to avoid pain, you know. Like why would I want this? I don't want it. But in that, there's absolutely like a withholding of consent. You know, it's 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 like a refusal. I don't know, like putting the brakes on reality, which really only kind of intensifies it. And I feel like in those seasons, it was like that was awful. And then when there was some kind of resolution, it was just kind of like, oh, okay, well, I'm so glad that's over. Let's move on, you know, until the next catastrophe would happen. And then I felt like I still didn't have any tools. Whereas I think what we're talking about when we say like, keep going in hell or like stay there for a little bit longer, it's it's this idea of consenting to conscious suffering. Like I'm stuck in something. I can't change the circumstances. Like, what what is in here for me? And if I could just give a very brief example of yeah. of a personal example from my life. So about yeah. ten years ago, my husband, who was like only thirty two at the time, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh my goodness! And yeah. this was obviously really shocking. I was only twenty nine. I'm like, who does this happen to? You know what I mean? Like. People are not supposed to get this kind of diagnosis at this age. This is way too early. And like, Jen, I just flipped out like mm-hmm. F minus on the test for like emotional <laughs> resilience, you know, <laughs> like I, I just can barely remember anything from that time other than like how horribly terrified I was. Mm-hmm. And it kind of resolved and it was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, we like dodged a bullet. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, about nine years later, last fall, he had another occurrence of it. And this time it was worse. It was stage three and he immediately had to get chemotherapy. And, Mm. you know, it was like, he went from healthy to like, oh my gosh, this is happening. And I could feel that same gravitational pull into the abyss of terror and anxiety. You know, like, I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. want this to, you know, Yadi, you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And and the only difference this time was I recognized that there was nothing at the bottom of that dark hole for me. Like I knew where it went, that there was no resolution or peace at the bottom of it. And I remembered how awful it was the first time. And, you know, I had three kids now and I'm like, I can't do that. And I remember having this moment of going like, you know what, I, instead of like feeling like I'm you know, closing my eyes and pushing away from this dark hole, I'm going to turn around and look into it. Just look squarely into everything that I'm afraid of, you know, death, sickness, this suffering, like loss and grief and facing all of it. And it was almost like the consent to just look at it. Um, (laughs) And feeling the fire in myself to go like, this will not like break me. Like I will face this with courage. Just sort of dissolved it for me. It's, Mm. you know, 
to go back mm-hmm. to mythology, this isn't biblical mythology, but the whole, you know, the whole thing about like slaying a dragon, you know, in 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 fairy tales and these kind of things. And we like to think, right. oh, they're just fairy tales, but it's, you know, it's someone who who gets a task who has to consent to like face their deepest fears. So, you know, something that Joseph Campbell would say is like, you know, the cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. Like this principle of like whatever scares you the most, like move towards it consciously. And if you can face it, then you don't necessarily get safety, but you get bravery and that's better. <laughs> mm, I like that. I like that. That's a really very strong image. Um of what's going on here. I I have to say, I would love to skip over to two of your two of your engagements with the parables. Um if you don't mind. Wanna Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I know yeah. there was a couple of them. Yeah. There were yeah, there were several. And I think at this point we've actually touched on some of some of them already. I'm wondering, I found it particularly actually enlightening. Um, reading what you had to say about the parable of the weeds in chapter 29, when you mm-hmm. talk about, um, you know, how the, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's, you know, there's a, there's a field and they sow the, they sow the, whatever the produce is going to be. And in it, there are weeds growing up. And instead of pulling all the weeds, right, the master or the, the owner says, nope, let the weeds grow along with the the plants and we'll manage it later, right? And so would you mind briefly just unpacking how you used to hear this parable and how you now hear this parable? Um, and also this thing about Jesus, you know, he often, he did speak in parables. And, you know, to what extent do people take the parables symbolically? And to what extent do people take them literally? I think the parables can be easier to take more metaphorically and symbolically yeah. than some of the other stories. And at the same time, you're still putting a really interesting and helpful spin on the way you handle them. So do you mind if I read it? No, please do. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the enslaved people of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The the enslaved people said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, well, yeah, to your first question, how did I first encounter this story? Well, the way that it was always framed for me was the Christians were the wheat. (laughs) <laughs> and the non-believers were the weeds. Right. And at the end of on judgment day, that right. you know, anyone who doesn't follow the Christian religion and has quote unquote accepted Jesus in their heart is right. gonna burn in hell. Like that. that right. Was, right. Yes. It's very clear. The They're gonna be bound yes. and burned, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um so the interpretation that I was given was the weeds were essentially unbelievers who were destined for hell, you know? Right, right. Um so what what how I came to read this story through like a psychological and you know metaphorical perspective based on you know the own my own psychological work that I was doing was you know some of the things that I was experiencing an, an example that I give in this chapter is talking about you know depression that I had had these bouts with depression in my life and how that always it always felt like some sort of failure or something that I was unable to 
overcome, like just categorically bad, you know, like something that you would pray away. God wouldn't want anything like that for you, et cetera, et cetera. And realizing that, you know, kind of going back to that rediscovery of, of my essence that essentially was buried very deep, deep down. It had never left me. It was just something that had been sowed very deep in the ground that had not you know, been allowed to to grow or grow fully. And so I, I started to recognize like, you know, in reading the work of Jung, you know, he would say like, don't be too quick to get rid of your neurosis. Like if you, <laughs> if you try to cure your, your neurosis too quickly, you're, you're going to essentially like sever your gift. Like if, and so in his theories, like if you actually follow the thread of your neurosis is going to lead to your gift. And so, you know, I started to see depression personally for me and anxiety as well as this source of wisdom, you know? And so the depression again, um, to go back to sort of the picture I gave you about, you know, the fear that I was experiencing with my husband's cancer diagnosis, it was the same sort of thing with depression, where it's almost like feeling like there's like this black hole that you're trying not to fall into. And so there's like a resistance and a pulling away from it, which sort of ends up intensifying it in some mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. But I realized that w- essentially what it was doing was like pulling me, quote unquote, down, so to speak, but into myself. And so once I started to see it with sort of a purpose that I could consent to, like, okay, this doesn't feel pleasant. This doesn't feel intuitive to consciously turn around and look into the dark hole and kind of let myself go down there. But once I did, I, I would discover something that I had abandoned down there. And it's like mm. once once I was made conscious of what had been buried in the unconscious and kind of worked to like bring it into my life, then the depression would kind of just dissipate, you know? Mm. Mm. And so so it was interesting that I something that I would have called a quote unquote weed was yeah. actually serving the purpose of bringing like the wheat into fruition. So, and I talk, I talk about how some other things, you know, how I, I, you know, would just kind of serve compulsively like in the church, because Mm -hmm. that was always applauded as like wheat and good fruit and like, yay, (laughs) this is good for everybody, you know, good for you. Yeah. But yeah, but really uh, kind of examining my motivations was like, why am I doing this? I'm Mm -hmm. doing this because I want to be viewed as, you know, a good Christian. I want the people here to like me. I want to find belonging. And so it was almost like a trade, not all the time, but sometimes there was like, this isn't, I'm not doing this with pure motivations. I'm not doing this with a pure heart. You know, that's Mm -hmm. not to say that like the effects of serving don't benefit people. Oftentimes they do, but Mm -hmm. I would essentially like burn myself out and experience sort of like resentment, you know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, but I didn't, there was no one in that environment that would have ever mirrored that to me personally as something that was sort of a weedy behavior. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. So to, to right. me, the parable became, um, it made sense when he said like, let it all grow up until, until essentially like the, the weeds or the neurosis becomes so obnoxious that you have to deal with it. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 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 And also, and this is tangential to what you're talking about, but I sometimes I can't help myself. In the story, when we t- it's talking about an enemy, um, but even at the level of enemy, though the those pieces in our those the people or the things in our lives that are represented by that label enemy. I really don't like the label enemy, but the people and the events that that represents are still there to serve a purpose or they yes. and I don't mean this in God as a puppet is make is putting this in your life to to for your will it's more like in this life that we're living <laughs> even those mm-hmm. people who may intend ill there's a there's a thing to you know hang in there with it let it yeah. its own fruit essentially play out and we can handle it better than anyway, you know, to a certain right. extent, right? I think that might be what you're saying. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm keen to 
to in, to help people see some of these things in the biblical texts are actually have been demonized that perhaps shouldn't be. And I think this is one of them. Yes. And on the flip side, yes. as you've pointed out, the idea of reading that particular parable as about us and them is actually a demonization that is really unhealthy yes. for people. And we and I would like to help people stop doing that, you know. So it's a really yes. it's interesting, right? That we're not yes. we've, we've many of us have been taught to see it that way, but it's really almost the flip side of, of what's being talked about. And it's being talked about in a much more this world, this life, how we're living it, how we can manage it better, or, you know, find our, our as you talk about, you know, the, our, you know, what's going on for us, acknowledging that and dealing with it instead of ignoring it, looking away, right? right? All the things that yeah. have Many of the, ha I think, ways of handling things that people, um, maybe a knee-jerk reaction to handling the difficulties. Um, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to say, I, I was, before reading your book, I really enjoyed when I opened to the, the title page and you had written, you know, before we knew each other, before we'd had any conversations, I think you and I had a, a few really helpful meaningful for me conversations after the conference. But you wrote, and I imagine you write this every time you sign a book. Um, Jennifer, everything you seek is within. Is that is that kind of your your go-to signing a book line? Is that I, is that I use it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I just sent maybe... someone one for like Christmas. So I think I wrote like Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or something. But okay, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I think that ties in really nicely with what you were just saying about even the word enemy, because, yeah, that phrase, everything you seek is within, I do mean everything, like even our perceived enemies, you know, um, just to what you were saying um, about how like that word, you know, kind of causes an instinctual us versus them, like it, it couldn't possibly be me. <laughs> who's the quote unquote bad one, you know, uh, it has uh, to be this external there. thing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and uh -huh. what, I loved what you just said about how some of these circumstances that, you know, we might right off the bat label is like, this is enemy, this is horrible or whatever, actually kind of serve to help us look at ourselves and grow in some way. So an example of that to go back to the service thing that I was just talking about, you know, you sort of had this wave of quote unquote deconstruction and everything where, you know, a lot of people have kind of said like, you know, I, the church, you know, took advantage of me and like, you know, I, I worked so many hours at, as a volunteer and, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, how could they take advantage of me in that way? Which is a good question. But then also <laughs> for me, it begs the question, why did I consent to that? What was I seeking right. that I decided I, I need to give this much time, energy, and agency to like an external institution to fill some void in me? And I think, you know, like, well, if I went and volunteered at my kid's school for like, you know, an endless amount of hours, they would, they would say yes. You know, I'm like, if pretty much any like service, you know industry or you know anybody who accepts volunteers like as much as the volunteers are going to show up like they're going to say yes to you you know mm -hmm. and so there was that element of of kind of going like all right the self-responsibility what am I seeking here that is kind of you know inviting this circumstance into my life whereas if I just think like the enemy is out there and it's them and you know, they've taken advantage of me, then I've given up my agency again, you know, to say like, I have no control over the situation. I had no control before. That's a very like powerless place to be operating from, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I don't know, is there, um, I, you know, the, the chapter, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is within, right? Is there, are there, I think we've touched on it. I don't know. Is there more you'd like to say about how you handle, 
And you pull that together with a couple other ideas. So I, I know it's not just this line, the kingdom of heaven is within or the kingdom of God is within. I, I will say that the idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven being within you. Yes. Um, it, you know, Jesus says that very plainly in yes. the gospel yeah. of Luke, Luke yes. seventeen twenty one. Yes. I don't, I don't know if I ever heard that in church, you know? Gotcha. Yep. So, yep. so I, th I think that there's, you know, on the one hand going like, oh, it was right here in my text the whole time. No one was right. hiding that from me. Right. Um, but there was an over-reliance on, you know, what stood out to my pastor, you know, what, what resonated with him, whatever he felt compelled to share, you know? Right. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. reasonable, you know? And it's reasonable. <laughs> yes. yes. I'm throw them under and the bus. Right? Yes. And it's like everyone is really just sharing from their own level of understanding. Right. Um, but yeah, my my first experience with this, um, you know, with that trans woman on my front porch was hmm. was this feeling of this eternal now, um, this concept of time really just being a measurement and you know, the hmm. fullest experience of reality being something much deeper than time, you know, hmm. being an experience from the deepest part of my heart, which felt timeless and eternal and like living from that place and kind of seeing the world through those eyes. Like I understood what Jesus was talking about here. The kingdom of God is within you. It's a way of, of seeing the world. It's a way of seeing, you know, Christ or this essence, this divine essence that we've been talking about, like infused in everything and sort of recognizing all forms as extensions of the one God, the one all in all, but these forms kind of being transitory, you know? So when Jesus says like, don't cling to me, he's saying, you know, don't get too attached to like the physical manifestations of things because there's something deeper within them that's, that never leaves. It's never going anywhere, you know, that's infused in everything. And it's just the physical forms that are changing. So when I started to see myself, um, to kind of give another metaphor, you know, as, you know, not the vehicle that is driving around and eventually breaking down, um, but, you know, this essence or soul inside the vehicle that can simply like step out of it and continue on. Since I started identifying with that, you know, essence inside the vehicle and not the physical body itself as much. Although clearly like the vehicle is giving me the messages that I need and I need to pay attention to. But, you know, I started seeing everyone else that way as well. And even, you know, addictions and behaviors and neuroses and all these sorts of things, I started to just kind of feel this universal compassion for everyone, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the behaviors and the coping mechanisms and all these things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I started to understand this kingdom of God is within you as, you know, this way of seeing the world. So at the end of that chapter, um, there's this quote from Nietzsche that where he says the kingdom of heaven is not something lying above the earth or coming after death. It does not have a yesterday or a day after tomorrow, and it will not arrive in a thousand years. It is an experience of the heart. It is everywhere and it is nowhere. And I love that because I feel like he's basically subtracting all the mental thought pictures that we have about heaven until essentially all you're left with is like the eternal now, you the know, present. yep. Yep. The present moment. Yeah. But the eternal present moment. Yeah. This is, this is really lovely. We have covered quite a few topics here. <laughs> Heather. Yeah, we have. I am really touched that you were willing to come have a conversation with me about your book. And you have shared quite a bit um, about your own life and you've been um, generously vulnerable. And I am really touched by that as well. I know that stories are what we, how we connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So I imagine we'll be getting some really lovely feedback on this, this beautiful woman who came on and shared so richly with us. Um, from your experiences. So thank you for that, Heather. I appreciate that. Thanks for inviting me, Jennifer. Yeah. So, so listeners, that's where we're going to wrap up for today. We've been 
I've had the privilege of talking with my recent friend, my new friend, Heather Hamilton, about her book titled Returning to Eden. And we didn't even really get into the meaning of her title. So it's, it's a, as I said, she touches on so many pieces of typical conservative faith structures and, and things. So Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey comes out of Heather's very deep contemplative processing of her own life experiences um, through these particular lenses that she had given to her as a child and that came to mean dramatically different things as she saw the mythic element of these biblical texts take make sense and give her a, a framework for how to make sense of her life. So thank you for for being with us and sharing with sharing with us a brief bit of how that has changed things for you. Thank you listeners for being here with us. We know you can choose where you spend your time and and whether or not you listen to our podcast. So I hope we hope that this has given you something productive and enriching for your day. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about the show. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. You may have noticed we changed our schedule recently. New episodes every other week. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Audio produced by Clara Carrera and Matt Byrne. Want to ask a question? Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Until our next wild conversation, we'll see you then.